0: From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Tuesday, July 10th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Coming up, the diplomatic wrangling over Syria heats up, also the end game for Bashar al-Assad. He
1: is certainly, by any definition of the word, a war criminal. He will certainly face charges for war crimes unless, as part of a deal to leave Syria,
2: others will agree that he will not be put on trial.
0: And later, a U.S. college baseball player on what it's like to play for fans in Cuba.
2: They were blowing the air horns. It was so loud, but, you know, they were very supportive of us. You know, when we scored a run, they would cheer.
3: The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by WGBH, producer of Market Warriors. Don't miss the series premiere of Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. United Nations envoy Kofi Annan was in Iran today to talk about Syria. He's trying to enlist the support of Syria's allies in Tehran, saying that they could play a positive role in ending the Syrian conflict. The U.S. reacted with skepticism. Meanwhile, another Syrian ally, Russia, announced that it will restrict shipments of new weapons to Damascus. At the same time, the U.S. says it's now monitoring a fleet of Russian warships that's steaming toward the Syrian port of Tartus. Ambassador Nicholas Burns was the Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs from 2005 until 2008. He says the move by Moscow to restrict new arms sales to Syria will anger the government of President Bashar al Assad.
1: Certainly. uh, I think the Syrian government will take the announcement by Russia that it's suspending new arms sales. The Syrian government will take that very, very badly. They'll take take it as a sign of a lack of confidence by Moscow and the Syrian government. Uh, It's unclear if Russia will put maximum pressure on the Syrian government. The Russians may be impressed by the fact that there's been a high-level defection in the Syrian armed forces. One of the generals closest to the Assad family over the last several years has defected. The rebel attacks on the Syrian government have continued with increasing ferocity. And there may be a calculation emerging in Moscow that President Assad will not now survive this crisis. If that's the case, The Russians obviously want to preserve whatever influence they can in the future with a future Syrian government. So they're certainly playing both sides of this issue. Russia has not been trustworthy, but I do think today's announcement is a significant one.
0: By the way, if Russia does indeed pull back, what happens militarily? What happens on a practical level? What's the repercussion, the fallout?
1: First, the Syrian government has been able to tell its own people, we're not alone. Because two of the great powers in the world, Russia and China, are supporting us. And if Russia does pull back on its support, that's obviously going to cut into the credibility of the Syrian government with those Syrians who still believe in the government. Secondly, on a more practical level, Russia really is in many ways a lifeline for Syria with arms, with trade, with loans – and if that begins to disappear there could be a domino effect and the syrians could run out of anybody to talk to overseas and that military support has been important because the you know at least 10,000 people have been killed in this conflict inside syria mainly civilians since the start the only way that the syrian government has been able to continue this barbaric Uh, assault on its own people, is with the military support from Russia. If that is now going to dry up, it's going to cut into President Assad's ability to continue this warfare. There is another country that Syria depends on. That's Iran. It's very clear that the Iranians are involved in advising the Syrian government and helping them. They're giving them tremendous political support. That's why Kofi Annan was there today. I don't think you'll see any similar moves by Iran to reduce its support because Iran needs Syria and needs the relationship with Syria to have influence in places like Lebanon.
0: Washington apparently wasn't too pleased uh, with Kofi Annan's visit to Tehran for talks. Since you were, under the Bush administration, Washington's point person for Tehran, what do you make of uh, Kofi Annan's visit and how productive it could be?
1: I do think there's a very stark difference between, on the one hand, this international diplomat who's simply trying to achieve, in a tactical sense, a ceasefire, and governments throughout Europe, the United States, and increasingly in the rest of the world who want nothing to do with President Assad. He is certainly, by any definition of the word, a war criminal. He will certainly face charges for war crimes unless, as part of a deal to leave Syria, others will agree that he will not be put on trial.
0: Ambassador Nicholas Burns was Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs from 2005 to 2008. He is now, among other things, director of the Future of Diplomacy Project at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Libyans are still awaiting the final results of their historic elections this past weekend. Turnout was high, and for the most part, the mood was celebratory. But the reaction was more complex in one city, the city of Sirte. That's the hometown of Libya's dictator, Muammar Gaddafi, and it's also where he met his death – Oliver C has the story.
4: <laughs> on the streets of Sirte, even the lampposts show dozens of bullet holes. Eight months after the final and possibly fiercest battle of the Libyan uprising, the scars of war are on display everywhere. You see heavily damaged buildings and gaping craters.
5: This is the most destructive place in, in Sirte. All kinds of weapons they used here. You see how it's destructed, horribly destructed. They just... Bombed everything they could.
4: Faraz Drew is a resident of Sirte's infamous district number no. two, the last pocket of pro Qaddafi resistance back in October. Qaddafi himself holed up here for weeks before his capture. And uh, you know, with the two the ID card and the voting card. This past weekend, Faraj cast his ballot at a primary school marked by the impact of a few rockets. Faraj hopes the district's participation in the elections can help wipe away the neighborhood's image as a pro-Qadhafi enclave.
5: They consider us all Qadhafi people, though we're not. We're Libyan, like them. But what to do? Some people like to put us in the basket of Gaddafi.
4: Other residents of District Number no. 2 point out that most civilians had already fled by the time Qaddafi and his guards took refuge here. Amna Faraj Ter escaped to Tunisia with a newborn son months before fighting started in her hometown. Now she's running at the top of the Muslim Brotherhood Party's local list. Sirte turned from a fishing village to a modern city during Qaddafi's decades in power. Amna says some people here still feel unhappy about the end of the Qaddafi rule. But she says they'll come around once the new authorities deliver on their promises, starting with rebuilding Sirte, but nothing's happened yet. They want someone to fix this area. They want to see something not on this beach. All they said we will rebuild Sirte, but there's no anything happening. A man who asked to be called Abu Ahmed squats in the shadow of the polling station. He produces his ink-colored finger with a smile but says he voted half-heartedly. <laughs> Abu Ahmed says he has no idea who he cast his ballot for. He just checked the box next to the first name on the list. He says he only voted because he didn't want to feel sidelined in the new Libya. Then he stops for a moment and He says he'd rather continue the conversation in the privacy of his home. We go to his place a few blocks away. Five minutes later, three armed men from the local militia knock on the door. The men say they saw me enter the house and just want to check that I'm fine. But Abu Ahmed tells me that's just a pretext. He's convinced they came to intimidate him so that he wouldn't speak his mind. Other residents say the militias were now running Sirte go well beyond threats. Some young men smoking on a stoop complain they've been harassed, beaten, and randomly arrested simply because they belong to the Qaddafi, the tribal group of Libya's former ruler. The men say they didn't vote. They don't feel safe going outside by themselves, so how could they feel safe enough to vote? They say whatever happens next, the newly elected assembly won't represent them. They say their candidates were banned from running because of their ties to the old regime. Then one of them says, all Libya is free, except for us. For The World, I'm Marine Olivézi, Sirte, Libya. Marine's report was
0: supported by a fellowship from the French American Foundation, United States. You can see her photos of bullet-marked buildings and post-election Libya at theworld.org. In Israel, a committee of legal experts has come out with a report that U.S. diplomats are none too happy with. The report recommends that Israel grant legal approval to scores of now-unauthorized Jewish settlements in the West Bank. The panel also states that Israel's control of the territory, where Palestinians want to establish a state, is not a military occupation. The government-appointed panel's recommendations are not binding, but the Obama administration says it's concerned over continued Israeli settlement activity. Israel's legal framework for the West Bank was created long ago, and that's the subject of a new documentary, as the world's Matthew Bell reports.
6: The film is called The Law in These Parts, and it's a pointed look at the legal side of Israel's 45-year-old occupation. Ranan Aleksandrowicz shot an earlier documentary about Palestinian kids that came out in 2001. A few years later, he started getting phone calls from some of the families of youth he'd spent time with. Their teenagers had been arrested by Israeli soldiers. Would he come to the military court hearing? Aleksandrowicz says that's when he got the idea for this film— Like most Israelis, he said he didn't know much about the legal system that Israel
7: developed for the occupied territories. Even though I had been a soldier in in the Israeli army in the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, in the height of the First Intifada, I've never been in a military courtroom. And looking at those trials and understanding them, I... ...started to think that it's very important that Israeli society become aware. For his protagonists, Alexandrowitz chose the legal
6: professionals... ...retired military judges, advocates, and advisors... ...who wrote, shaped, and implemented a legal system for Israeli-occupied lands. Aleksandrowicz did extensive studio interviews with his subjects and then cleverly interspersed these with archive material from the occupied territories, including scenes with some of his main characters. Here's one with army judge Jonathan Livni shot in a military courtroom during the first intifada.
8: I realize that I'm sent to the West Bank by the Israeli flag. And the people who sit here opposite it, view it as the flag of the enemy. And I represent that flag. But on the other hand, the other symbol which is even higher than the flag, are the scales of justice. And I hope I can always love my country as represented by the flag and still love justice and still uphold justice.
7: The public perception is that
6: most of this has to do with security. Alexandrowitz says the earliest laws published by Israeli military authorities in the occupied territories were indeed about security. They were basic rules about criminality and the penal code, he says.
7: But afterwards, immediately, There had to be dozens and then hundreds and finally thousands of orders that have to do with things that are completely not related to security. It can be orders about what plants the local population is not allowed to pick anymore. It can be orders that have to do with traffic. It can be orders that have to do with um, changing the situation so that Israel can use some of the resources of the area.
6: The Israeli military protects certain rights for Palestinians living under occupation. They have access to Israel's high court, for example. But here's the problem with the situation in the West Bank today, Alexandrowitz says. A legal system that was once assumed to be temporary is now nearly half a century old, and there's a fundamental flaw in the way Palestinian non-citizens are governed there.
7: In that same area, you have another group of people, Israeli citizens who live in the area, and they do have Israeli citizenship, they enjoy all the rights that come with being Israeli citizens, and that makes a very different situation on every section of life you choose to, to examine. It makes a great difference between two, the, the two groups. And crafting a legal system for such a
6: situation, as one of his interviewees puts it, means entering into a gray world, a place where the values of justice and rule of law collide with politics and ideology. The law in these parts is showing in San Francisco later this month and in other U.S. cities in the fall. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem.
0: You can see the trailer for The Law in These Parts, the documentary, at theworld.org. Hip-hop, jazz, chamber music, all part of the YES Academy in northern Iraq. We're going to camp later on PRI, Public Radio International.
3: The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest, learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The daughter of a slain South Korean dictator launched a bid today to become the country's first female president. Her name is Park Geun-hae. Her father, President Park Chung-hee, kick-started Korea's rapid economic growth back in the 1970s. He was assassinated by his spy chief in 1979. Park Geun-hae still has to win the nomination of her conservative party, but polls suggest that she could be the front-runner in the December elections. Still, some observers say she'll have a tough time winning the support of one demographic, young female voters. Reporter Jason Struther has more now from Seoul.
5: In South Korea, Park Kun hye is as close to royalty as you can get, and today she moved one step closer to what many believe is her political destiny. The soft-spoken 60-year-old kicked off her campaign at a trendy shopping mall in Seoul. Park once described her policies as Korean Thatcherism, but today she pledged that if elected, she would create more social welfare programs and a country where no one is left behind. She also promised to improve relations with North Korea. Park's pedigree as the daughter of the leader who helped bring South Korea out of dire poverty and into the first world is reason enough for many here to vote for her. Jong Chun-ju, who came to watch the speech today, says Park will be a different leader than her most recent predecessors. She's honest and very direct, Jong says. She's not going to be corrupt like our other presidents. We are ready to have a female president. Like Jung, most of the women in the crowd today were in their 60s and 70s. Park's campaign is having trouble attracting young female voters. Kang Yu-jung is a 28-year-old PhD candidate at Seoul Suknung Women's University. She says that like many women her age, she can't separate Park Geun-hye from her father's dictatorial rule. Kang says that as a woman, she'd be happy to see a female president, but not Park geun Hae. She's a conservative who only got to where she is because of her father. Kang says Park only represents the privileged class, not normal Korean women. Park's gender hasn't played much of a role in her political career, and some observers say that's been intentional. Park Sang Mi lectures in cultural anthropology at Hankuk University of Foreign Studies in Seoul. She says Park's political style isn't much different from her male counterparts, and that works in the male-dominated politics of South Korea.
9: I think Park Geun-hye has made a safe bet by playing the male game, so that she can show that she can be as capable as male politicians. I'm not sure whether ordinary voters are ready for a female president.
5: Bach adds she's also unsure if ordinary voters might feel put off that Park Geun-hye has never married or had children. 36-year-old Kim Hee-jung brought her one-year-old son with her to Park's rally at the shopping mall. She says the candidate could have learned a few things if she had a family of her own. Her image is that she doesn't communicate well with others, says Kim. She doesn't know how to listen. She says whether Park is married or not, that's a quality a president must have. For The World, I'm Jason Strother in Seoul.
0: We don't really know whether the new leader of North Korea is married. Kim Jong-un has kept his private life a secret. He did so even before he succeeded his late father, Kim Jong-il, in December. But recently, the younger Kim has been spotted with a mystery woman in a black suit by his side. North Korea's official media haven't said who she is, though. The two were last seen together at a stage show that featured none other than Mickey Mouse and other Disney characters. Daniel Dresner, this has all captured your imagination, hasn't it?
10: It's got everything, if you think about it. It has a a mysterious ruler, a mysterious woman, and, of course, Disney princesses, potentially.
0: What more could a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University ask for? What do we know, starting with a mystery woman who was sitting next to uh, Kim Jong-un? What do we know about her, if anything?
10: It's been rumored that it's uh, possibly uh, Kim Jong-un's sister, uh, possibly uh, his new wife. Uh, It could just be an aide. It is entirely unclear what her role is.
0: Okay. So the mystery woman isn't the only interesting thing about uh, Kim's latest public appearances. How about that show? This is a live show that featured uh, Mickey and Minnie and Winnie as in the Pooh and Tigger too. Disney characters, they're apparently common in North Korea on things like backpacks and and, uh, school clothing that comes in from China. But in a public show like this with lots and lots of uh, North Korean generals present and Kim Jong-un?
10: Uh, that's highly unusual, uh, not to mention slightly illegal, because uh, North Korea did not get permission, apparently, from Disney uh, to use these characters. Um, and in some ways, this is consistent with the Kim family, uh, which has been obsessed, to some extent, uh, with Hollywood and with Disney and so forth. Uh, Kim's father, Kim Jong Il, who who ruled the country before him, uh, actually wrote a book called "On the Art of the Cinema" in 1973, and was actually in charge of the North Korean film industry, and was so obsessed with trying to produce good films that he actually kidnapped uh, a South Korean film and uh, his uh, girlfriend at the time to try to somehow jumpstart North Korea's film industry. Furthermore, uh, Kim Jong-un's older brother, uh, Kim Jong-nam, was originally supposed to succeed uh, Kim Jong-il, except he got himself into trouble because he was caught sneaking, trying to sneak uh, into Japan to visit Tokyo's Disneyland under a fake passport.
0: Okay. The rest of the show was pretty interesting, too, not just because of uh, those North Koreans, uh, presumably North Koreans, who were dressed up as Mickey and Minnie, but also the North Korean women who were playing violins as part of an orchestra. um, And what they were wearing was unusual in terms of North Korean garb.
10: I can only describe it as Disney princess wear. Um, This this really looks like not only the Disney characters were being uh, being used, but you're also seeing some effort at perhaps buying into the Disney princess culture. And I think this might actually be an opportunity for the United States to pursue some relatively unconventional statecraft towards Pyongyang.
0: And why do you think that this uh, could possibly present a diplomatic opening?
10: The United States has pursued a variety of different uh, diplomatic gambits towards North Korea since that country tried to pursue nuclear weapons. I think we need to think seriously about weaponizing a Disney princess. I think that perhaps, you know, if we could somehow convince Disney to make a new movie that would contain subliminal messages that would potentially key into uh, Kim Jong-un, maybe that would be a way we could get a breakthrough. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, I hate to say on a serious tone, but does this uh, signify anything uh, more substantive, in fact, about uh, where Kim Jong-un is taking in this new generation of the North Korean regime?
10: I've seen some suggestions in the press that this is a signal that, you know, by by demonstrating greater openness to Western popular culture, perhaps this will be a, a greater opening of some kind. I think that's certainly possible, but I would be very wary about over-reading what's going on, it might simply be that, that Kim Jong-un, like his father, uh, likes Hollywood. And, you know, and, and because he can have his way now, he's much more comfortable with it actually being publicly seen by the rest of North Korea as well. Um, so certainly it's, it's new and it's different. I don't know if there's anything of substance that you really can draw from it.
0: Daniel Dresner, uh, who won't stop trying, a professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Nice to speak with you.
11: Nice to speak with you, too. Thank you.
0: You, too, can see Mickey and Minnie's show in North Korea, unauthorized by Disney and worth a look. We've posted the video at theworld.org. I'm Lisa Mullen, Still ahead in Trinidad, the bulldozing of a nesting site for endangered turtles. And later, Russia's problem with drug addiction is getting worse.
9: Russia has one of the world's most seriously deteriorating drug
0: situations. So how come Russia's blaming the Beatles? That story and more coming up on The
3: World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at pih.org.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Imagine you travel to the Caribbean island of Trinidad to watch the hatching of eggs laid by endangered leatherback turtles, and instead you witness the death of thousands of baby turtles. That's what tourists visiting Grand Riviere Trinidad experienced. The hotel where they were staying is right next to a beach that's also the world's densest nesting area for leatherbacks. Government work crews showed up. They had bulldozers. They were trying to redirect a river that threatened the site. In doing so, though, the bulldozers crushed as many as 20,000 eggs. Stephen Broadbridge runs tours to the affected beach. He's seen the damage. He's also a spokesman for a tourism trade group and a founder of an environmental campaign group in Trinidad. Stephen, you saw the beach right after the bulldozers ended up crushing these eggs. What was the scene like when you were there?
11: It's normal beauty all around um, except for the the tragic loss of thousands of eggs and turtles and baby turtles that never stood a chance. You know, they just a uh, Crushed right there on the spot. It was quite upsetting for everybody, including the, uh, the community. The local community depend on the tourism as well, and they have uh, many of them have become very uh, fanatic turtle protectors. And to see all the protection they offer, could not stop this, could not pro, you know, could not protect these animals. So we're all very very upset about it.
0: Did the those who were operating the bulldozers? Uh realize what they were doing. It, it seems odd that this could go on for so long given the, the nature of the beach itself as being as well-known as it is as a hatchery area for turtles.
11: There's no way they could not have seen it and there's no way that the villagers being protectors of the turtles there would not have kept quiet. So they obviously continued on. It would be hard for me to believe that this uh, tractor operator did not see what was happening. It would be very hard. I think he just thought, oh, these silly turtles, let me just finish the job. That's what. I think, happened. You know, it's very, very embarrassing.
0: As as a tour guide, I wonder if you can tell us how you believe this will affect the commercial trade there, uh, the tourism trade. And as an environmentalist, I wonder what this all means.
11: Some of the ones that would have survived to m- maturity may have been amongst the ones that got crushed. In fact, pretty sure some of the adults that would have survived were crushed. You know, it's already hard for these things to survive in the wild. It's it's um, even harder when man does careless things.
0: And commercially, that must be a concern as well. Commercially,
11: it's like, it's it's extremely bad PR for the tourism industry. We make millions of dollars on um in revenue, much needed foreign revenue, from groups that come down specifically to help work on tagging the turtles and gathering research. If visitors decided not to go there anymore. And the local community realized there was no longer money in conservation. It could have a, a negative effect as well. If they don't see the cash coming in, they're not going to protect. And without, you know, we, we need their cooperation to protect. So we really need visitors to be coming in.
0: That was Stephen Broadbridge of the Trinidad and Tobago Incoming Tour Operators Association. You can take a look at the damaged nesting area in Trinidad. It's at theworld.org. world.org. <laughs> Baseball, for today's GeoQuiz, we'd like you to name the landmark Cuban baseball stadium. It's in Havana, the capital. It seats 55,000 fans. The opening game was back in 1946. That one featured two of Cuba's old professional baseball teams. The Pro League, though, was abolished after Fidel Castro's communist revolution. But baseball has remained a part of Cuba's identity. Today, two of Cuba's top amateur teams play in this stadium in Havana. And this week, a U.S. team of collegiate all-stars played there against Cuba. Cuba's national team. Two teams played a five game series, in fact. We'll hear from one of the players representing the USA when we return with the answer in just a few minutes. The Yes Academy is a performing arts summer camp. It offers two weeks of intensive training in music, dance, and theater. Its teachers come from all over the United States and attract students from all over, all over Iraq, that is. The Yes Academy is run by a U.S. nonprofit, American Voices, with the backing of the American and Iraqi governments. The camp takes place in Duhok in Iraqi Kurdistan. That's up in the north. More than 200 Iraqis are there right now in their second week of rehearsals. They sent us samples ranging from hip hop classes to
7: Hamlet. Minham Yani Ame. So let's do
12: this. Let's do this. Boom ta boom ta boom tao ta boom, da, boom.
0: One of the people you're hearing on violin there is Alan Abdul Razak Rashid. He's playing violin in that last clip. He joins us now from the Yes Academy in Duhok, Iraqi Kurdistan. Alan, what have you been working on today?
1: Uh, I am working with the staff, the Yes Academy. We have chamber music, orchestra, classical music, a lot of things. Uh, I have also learned a little bit of uh, their culture.
12: And language,
0: yeah. Yeah, your your English is is pretty good. Um, what (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) Alan, thank you, and I wish you good luck in the performance. You have a performance coming up on Thursday, right? Yeah. Yeah,
8: good luck. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Could you do me a favor? We'd like to talk to Bruce Walker, who is with you right now.
8: Hello, this is Bruce Walker.
0: Hi, Bruce Walker, director of orchestras at the Sunnyside School District in Washington State.
8: You're a long way from home, Bruce. I, I'm, there, I'm about 6,800 miles away. You are correct.
0: <laughs> but who's counting? How did you come to be uh, teaching cello in Iraq, as you are right now during the summer camp?
8: Well, it, it kind of happened very randomly in March of 2010. Um, I, I got a phone call from a, a dear colleague back home in St. Louis um when i was studying uh, my undergraduate degree and it pretty much they asked me they were looking for a cellist and a conductor and a teacher that would be very 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 flexible and uh i think the award-winning question was if the lights were to turn out what would you do and i just said i'd sing happy birthday until the lights came back on and he said you're hired
0: i think you're probably very good at improv aren't you (laughs)
8: <laughs> very 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 yes i try to think quick on my feet <laughs> so
0: how how have you had to think quickly on your feet as you're there what 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 uh what, what's been the interactions been like
8: one one thing i can say is when they come to us you know while they might have you know they come with a technique book or an excerpt book or an etude book they have no way to really apply it to a certain piece of music and so our jobs is to you know we know what we've gone through in our training. That's what we're trying to give them, is to show them that this is the road that you travel. And a lot of the kids really do it on the, their own, and it's it's really amazing.
0: Well, it's very nice to talk to you about it. We're going to feature a slideshow of the students at the YES Academy in Iraq, in Kurdistan, northern Iraq, where you are now, Bruce Walker, uh, on our website, theworld.org. Bruce Walker, member of the faculty of the YES Academy, Which is put on by the nonprofit called American Voices, and we also spoke to one of Dr. Walker's students, Alan Abdulrazak Rashid. Thank you, Bruce, and best
8: wishes to you all. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Coldplay song, by the way, is performed by the Yes Academy Orchestra in northern Iraq. Baseball game we mentioned in today's GeoQuiz was a close one. Team USA, a college all-star squad, edged out Cuba's national baseball team 5-4. to four. That game took place last night in Havana's Latin American Stadium. Latin American Stadium is the answer to our GeoQuiz today. Team USA flew out of Havana earlier today, and we have caught up with the shortstop, 21-year-old Kyle Farmer. Welcome back, Kyle.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Congratulations on uh, on last night, and I guess out of the five games, is it true that uh, Team USA won two?
2: USA won two. Cuba won three. You know, Mm -hmm. it was it was a good it was a good series, and uh, it was a lot of fun. And you know, Cuba had a lot older players. You know, guys that were you know in their mid thirties, and we're just college guys. You know, I'm I'm a rising senior, and there's some guys that are rising sophomores. And uh, you know it was a great experience for us, and uh, the fans were great. You know it was it was like we were playing at home. You know they love the game of baseball over there.
0: Was it really like you were playing at home? And by the way, were the the Cubans you were playing were they kind of the equivalent of of MLB Major League Baseball players in Cuba?
2: Maybe not as talented, but they were the same age. I mean, they were the bet they're the best in Cuba, and you know we're the best in the United States, and it was a good matchup.
0: You mentioned the fans. Um, you said it felt like you were right at home. You weren't the, the hometown crowd, though. You were the visitors. What was it like in the stands?
2: I would compare it, if you ever watched a soccer game, a soccer game over in Europe or something like that. You know, they had air horns. They were they were blowing the air horns. It was so loud, but, you know, they were very supportive of us. You know, when we scored a run, they would cheer. And when, when some of our guys hit home runs, I mean, it got kind of quiet, but, you know, it, it started kicking up a little bit. And then when we were, when we were outside of the field, we would ride on the bus and um, you see all the townspeople, and, you know, they were all pointing at us and like, acting like they were swinging a baseball bat and they were giving us a thumbs up. And, you know, they, they were happy to see us and we were happy to go down there.
0: Did the uh, what did you do in the off hours?
2: We went down to the market twice and, you know, we saw a bunch of uh, some of their portraits they paint. And, you know, just we, we walked through the town and we went to um, the Riviera where um, the famous movie was filmed. I can't remember. I can't think of the name right now. But it was it was an awesome scenery. You know, it's it's a very pretty town.
0: Were you able to get to know any of the Cuban players?
2: You know, I I tried talking to some of them. You know, we would say just you know, "Hola," "Hello," you know, "Good game." But it was kind of quick. You know, we we took care of business, and they took care of their business, and we just kind of went our separate ways. I mean, they showed a lot of generosity towards us. You know, giving us food before the game and stuff like that. And we weren't really able to communicate with them because of the language barrier.
0: Was there any kind of uh, um, barrier that you didn't expect when you guys were out on the field?
2: Sure. They, um, you know, they're really, really slow-paced baseball. You know, Here in the United States, we're very quick. And we want to get it in and out. And they were, you know, they'd throw the ball around after a strikeout probably 15 to 20 times before they get the ball back to the pitcher, which is crazy because you don't see that here in the United States. And um, just the, the way they, they move, they're, they're very smooth in the infield. You know, I watched their shortstop and I learned a lot of things from him, you know, just by the way he, he positioned himself, the way he got to, the, to ground balls and, and just watching them hit also. You know, they're, they're very, they know what they're doing and uh, we learned a lot.
0: Uh, what else did you learn? We should say, by the way, if anybody's hearing the background noise or speaking to you at the Miami International Airport, where you and the team have just arrived, what else did you learn either on the field or off?
2: You know, they love the game of baseball and they, they never give up and I mean we, we lost our three games when we were up and they you know they came back and beat us and you know we just we just always learned to never give up and just play the love the game. That's what that's what I saw out of all of them. You know, they they loved it and they, they were happy to be out there and you know, just playing the game. That's what I mean, that's what they love to do. That's all they have to do over there and that's what they do. And it was that's that's probably the biggest thing I've learned.
0: Do you um, have any uh, souvenirs packed away? I won't ask you about the cigars, which uh, you can only bring in <laughs> illegally, but uh, any other baseball souvenirs or souvenirs of any kind?
2: Before the game, we exchanged pins, and they gave us a Cuba T-shirt. And then I, I uh, went to the market and, and bought some some of their portraits. So I'm going to give my grandmother and my mom. They're very, very pretty, very detailed, very colorful. And um, I could have spent a lot more, but I didn't have enough for in my bags. But it was, it, was, it was very pretty and it was very cool. That's great. You know, the the, the country of Cuba, it's an, it's an awesome place. And, you know, they treated us awesome. And I was, I, you know, I'm so happy I got the honor to come. And I turned down the major league draft to go into my senior year, not knowing that I was going to get this opportunity. But I'm so glad that I got this opportunity to play with these g- group of guys and just play for the United States of America. And
0: By the way, who were you drafted by?
2: I was drafted by the New York Yankees. <laughs>
0: yes. Well, we're glad you stayed in school. Uh, what school are you in right now? <laughs>
2: I'm at the University of Georgia.
0: All right. Speaking to us from Miami International Airport, 21-year-old Kyle Farmer, shortstop for Team USA, just back from playing Cuba. So nice to talk to you. Welcome home.
2: Thank you. I appreciate everything you've done.
0: From baseball to bicycling and the Beatles, coming up on PRI.
3: The World is brought to you with help from WGBH, producer of Market Warriors, from the people that brought you Antiques Roadshow. Four pickers scour flea markets nationwide, hoping to outprofit their competitors at auction. Don't miss the series premiere of Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 Central on PBS.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The Tour de France is approaching the halfway point, and something unusual is happening. A Brit is in the lead. Britain hasn't produced a Tour de France winner in the race's entire 109-year history. Of course, many challenges remain in the second half of the world's premier cycling road race. BBC Sports News reporter Matthew Slater is following this tour right now. The current leader, Bradley Wiggins, a colourful character. Tell us about uh, about this man.
12: Oh, yeah. Well, he's a, he's a very interesting guy. Um, he's a Londoner, so he kind of speaks his mind. Uh, as as some of the uh, Tour de France journalists have discovered over the last few days, um, he really came to prominence here as a cyclist on the track, uh, as an Olympic cyclist, and um, he's actually very very good. He's he's got three Olympic gold medals over two games, but. Around 2006, 2007, he started to experiment with road cycling. Um, But his real breakthrough came in 2009 when he was riding for an American team, when he came fourth in the Tour de France uh, and then got a big money move to this new British team called Team Sky uh, and was in great shape last year and crashed. And then it's really ever since he's come back from that injury, pretty much everything has gone right. And he came into this year's tour as a worthy favourite and he's dominated the first nine, ten stages.
0: Which might explain, as you mentioned, his comments over the past few days, because there's something of a dark shadow over the Tour de France, as you well know these days, with, uh, with uh, multiple doping charges against participants and former participants, Lance Armstrong among them. Uh, maybe you can explain exactly what happened with regard to uh, the man in the lead right now, Bradley Wiggins, mm. and what his response was.
12: I, I, so <laughs> there was an awful lot of... Um, very British Anglo-Saxon swearing going on. Yeah, we and
0: don't have the bleeper it, w- no. handy. Well so. I,
12: well, I won't repeat them. But the background to this is he's very good now. The talent was always there, but he's something of a late bloomer. And there's so much suspicion in cycling. People have been lied to so many times that there are always going to be people asking questions. And some of this stuff has really come. Well, pretty much all of this stuff has come from the you know the internet. You know, Twitter people, people blogging anonymously because. Wiggins' actual CV is absolutely textbook perfect. And I think he's just got very frustrated with the whispering campaign. It was a slightly naughty question from a journalist. It was sort of a, what do you make of the people that say this about you? And he just lost it. The gist of what he said was, look, I've got no time for these people. They're anonymous and they just can't believe that someone can achieve this through hard work and sacrifice. You cleaned Um, it up a lot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) How come Britain
12: is doing so well this time around? Ah, well, look, we are very much a sort of volunteer-type nation. So success we've had along the ways has normally been despite as opposed to because of the system. But about 20 years ago, we had an absolutely miserable Olympics, and there was a bit of a kind of, right, that's it, a road to Damascus moment, we're going to start funding sport properly, taking it a bit more seriously. Pretty much ever since then, we've been rising in the Olympic medal table. So the success has come from Olympic sports – and it's filtered now into other sports like road cycling so we're just doing well
0: as is uh Bradley Wiggins i guess uh, pretty much britain's going to be doing a lot better as he uh, as he maintains the yellow shirt
12: well absolutely i mean he's he's in great shape and of course chris Froome is looking good for a position on the podium as well so that's remarkable you know as you say 109 year history our best ever finish was fourth but we've got a great chance of having two guys on the podium There's just good things happening. And look, the Olympics are around the corner. We've got chances of winning gold medals there on the road as well.
0: Okay, The BBC's Matthew Slater following the Tour de France for the BBC. Thank you. You're welcome. In case you're wondering, the American riders at the Tour de France aren't doing too badly. One of them, 23-year-old T.J. Van Garderen of Montana, is the current holder of the white jersey that's given to the tour's best young rider. Finally today, the Soviet Union was quick to reject Western cultural icons during the Cold War. Well, now it seems that one particular group of British musicians is back in Russia's crosshairs, and they're taking heat for the country's drug problems. Here's the world's Marco Werman.
13: The Beatles had a rocky relationship with Russia and other Soviet states during the Cold War.
0: Picture yourself in a boat on a river
13: Their music was forbidden, the Kremlin considered it dangerous, but that didn't stop clever comrades from bootlegging whatever Beatle sounds they could get their hands on. Some say the Beatles did more to speed the breakup of the Soviet Union than anything else.
0: A girl with kaleidoscope
13: Well, the Beatles broke up in 1970, and the Soviet Union broke up 20 years later. But Russia's love-hate relationship with the Fab Four seems to continue. Check this out. The Beatles are responsible for Russia's current drug woes. Yes, that is one long, strange trip. But Yevgeny Bryan doesn't think it's so funny. Bryan is Russia's drug czar, and he says Russia's current rampant substance abuse problems can be traced right back to the Beatles' use of psychedelics. In a conspiracy-laden explanation, Brian recently said that after the Beatles traveled to ashrams in India to expand their consciousness, they introduced the idea of changing your mental condition through drugs to the populace. Brian went on to say that when business understood that you can sell it all, pleasure and things that accompany it, that was the beginning of Russia's drug problem. A stretch, perhaps, though I called up Louise Shelley. She's the director of the Terrorism Transnational Crime and Corruption Center at George Mason University. First of all, she said, Russia does have a serious drug problem.
9: Russia has one of the world's most seriously deteriorating drug situations. Russia went from a problem before the Afghan war of relatively small drug use, because it was a country that was alcohol dependent, to now having... Millions and millions of drug-addicted people out of a population of 140 million. It's a tragic trajectory for a country.
13: Why would Russia's top drug official blame this on, on the Beatles?
9: I have no idea. In the past, they've often criticized the United States that we haven't done enough to stop the flow of drugs out of Afghanistan, because approximately a quarter of the drugs now exiting from Afghanistan go through Central Asia on up to Russia and then they go across Russia to the east and the west, creating drug addiction all across these routes.
13: So are the Beatles the latest drug scapegoat for Russia? If you ask me, this may be Russia's biggest Beatles problem. Judging from the YouTube video, this appears to be a soloist with a Russian Navy choir singing Let It Be. Apparently not all official circles in Russia still demonize the band. Talk about a love-hate relationship. Let's just keep the love part of it, shall we? For The World, I'm Marco Wernhert.
0: you can see that Russian singer's take on Let It Be. It's billed as the worst cover of a Beatles song ever, but it still has nearly a million likes. We've got it at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. We're back tomorrow.
3: Is a co production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported by the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by contributors to the PRI Program Fund, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet.
0: PRI Public Radio
3: International